0: Welcome to The Baton, a John Williams musical journey. Join host Jeff Cummings as he takes you through the career of the illustrious film composer John Williams, starting with his debut in 1959 through more than 100 films in 60 years. In this episode, we hear the music from E.T., the Extraterrestrial, made in 1982. Now, here's your host, Jeff Cummings hello everyone and thanks for being here for today's episode i am very excited about this one and not just because et the extraterrestrial is the focus of the show this episode kicks off year two of the baton which seemed like a very long way away when i started this project but now here we are on the back half of john williams's career And what an episode to get the second half of this podcast started. I mark ET, the extraterrestrial, as the second best John Williams score, running a very, very close second to The Empire Strikes Back. Like Empire, you would be hard pressed to find a false note in this score. And the final 15 minutes of music is the most perfect thing John Williams has ever written. I've invited a co-host to join me today who feels the same way about ET. Please join me in welcoming David K.
1: Thanks, Jeff. I'm a huge fan of the baton, and I'm really honored to be co-hosting this
0: episode with you. So, thank you. So, tell the listeners about your musical background and what drew you towards John Williams's music. Sure, happy to. Um, I'm
1: not a professional musician by any means, but I'm certainly a fan. I played trombone and, to a lesser extent, piano for uh, for decades now and I'm also a singer in the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus. Um, The other side of it is is several years ago I wrote a handful of analyses of film music uh, for the magazine Film Score Monthly, which I'm sure some of your listeners are familiar with. And honestly, Jeff, I don't know if I'd be doing any of that stuff if it weren't for John Williams. His music really captivated me ever since my piano teacher, Jeannie, gave me one of his Boston Pop compilation CDs, and my parents also gave me the soundtrack to The Phantom Menace. Um, so John Williams was really the gateway that led me into all types of musical genres and performance outlets.
0: Yeah, you're not going to find many uh, many people who have a story different from that when they talk about <laughs> how John Williams has in- intervened in their lives, and it's great that it continues to um, have such an impact on you all the way all these years later. So totally. there is so much we have to cover today. So let's get right to it. Uh, E.T. the Extraterrestrial is Steven Spielberg's most personal movie. He has said numerous times that the main character, the 10-year-old Elliot, is almost identical to himself at that age. Like Elliot, Spielberg was a child of divorce, building a resentment to his father, which he has since healed. Spielberg was also friends with an alien as a child, but his was completely imaginary. Spielberg planned to make a film about that period in his life after completing the the movie 1941. But, since 1941 was running well behind schedule, and with Raiders of the Lost Ark planned for a summer 1981 release, Spielberg had to put that film about a boy and his alien aside. Then, while he was shooting Raiders, he had a conversation with Harrison Ford's wife, Melissa Matheson, about his movie idea, and she helped transform it from a thriller about evil aliens to a child-friendly one about just one really nice alien left behind on Earth. Once Spielberg read that rough draft, he set this film, called E.T. and Me, as his follow-up to Raiders. Columbia Pictures was in early discussions to finance this movie, but that went when it had a darker tone. Columbia passed on the lighter version, but in an amazing deal, stipulated that the studio would get 5% of the film's profits if another studio makes it. We all know how well the movie did, which made a lot of money for Universal, and a good deal for Columbia as well. Unlike all his previous films, production of E.T. went as scheduled and stayed on budget. So John Williams was not under any extreme deadline pressure when the time came to compose the score.
1: What I love about this score is that it feels simultaneously epic and intimate. I think Williams has publicly noted that this score was particularly satisfying for him to work on. And as always, he wrote a ton of thematic material for the movie. We get at least five themes and a few other memorable motifs for standalone scenes.
0: When Williams writes so much thematic material for a film, you know he was inspired by the visuals. And Spielberg is Williams' biggest fan, so naturally he wanted all the themes put to good use in the movie. So David, let's talk about all of these themes, and through our discussion, it will be a way to play some of our favorite musical moments in the score. That sounds
1: great. I think undoubtedly the theme that everybody knows is called the flying theme, which is the one you hear in almost every John Williams concert, and is really the theme for E.T. and his powers. So for listeners who, who aren't familiar, that's the one that starts like, As its name suggests, it really does capture the feeling of flight. You have the long notes, the half notes, that ascend to greater and greater heights. So they go... And then between those you have short notes, eighth notes, that, to me, represent the nervousness and butterflies that the kids must be feeling as they do these crazy stunts. So that's the ones that are like. That third phrase, to me, sounds like the musical equivalent of Elliot shouting not so high. This is the one that goes.
0: That's amazing. The first time we hear this wonderful theme is 30 minutes into the movie after Elliot has faked an illness and is staying home from school. He's showing E.T. some toys, including a little car that E.T. tries to eat. It's not the full theme, but just enough of a taste for us to hunger for more. And we get a bit more later when E.T. takes Play-Doh and creates a floating solar system in Elliot's room. And after teasing us with that, we get the full treatment at the most famous moment in the film, when E.T. takes Elliot for a bike ride over the forest. The buildup in the orchestra is fantastic, and the brass crescendoing that major chord before the bike takes flight tells us, get ready for something amazing. As great as this music is, the timpani roll and musical swell as Elliot lets out a shriek of excitement really penetrates my soul. David, this is like Chasm Crossfire and Star Wars all over again. We had to wait 65 minutes to finally hear this one in all its glory, and boy, was it worth it.
1: I completely agree. It really is a gorgeous build-up. I love how prominently Williams mixed the piano and the score. It really is quintessential John Williams. Although, as some listeners may know, there was somebody else who believed that he was the inspiration for the famous flying theme. What do you mean? In 1983, a composer named Les Baxter sued John Williams, Universal Pictures, and MCA Records for plagiarizing a piece he wrote in 1954 called Joy. Baxter said that his theme and the flying theme were too similar to be a coincidence. Let's listen to a piece of Baxter's composition that he believed contained the same melody as the E.T. flying theme.
0: Jeff, do you think Baxter had a case? I'm curious. Absolutely not. No way. These two pieces of music have some similarities, but not enough to say that William stole the melody for his work. I
1: tend to agree with you. And I mean, I do hear the similarities. So again, the flying theme from E.T. goes... And the Baxter piece goes... So it's really these six notes, which it should be noted are really just scale patterns, they're the last five notes of a descending scale. It's a commonly used melodic figure. Now I do note the similarity, I think it's somewhat superficial though. Now I should say that I am not a lawyer and what follows is my understanding of how the lawsuit proceeded from secondhand sources. Now, Williams did concede when seeking a summary judgment that he was familiar with Joy. In fact, he played piano during a concert performance of the piece in the 60s. But the judge claimed that to a layperson, the two pieces were not sufficiently similar and that Baxter did not have a case. Baxter appealed and in 1987, a judge reversed the original finding and ordered Williams and Baxter to go to trial. Williams appealed the decision to the Supreme Court which refused to hear it. The case wound up going in front of a jury, which ruled in favor of the defendants on the basis that the portion of joy that Baxter claimed was similar to ET was not fully protected by copyright. Baxter appealed
0: unsuccessfully. I'm surprised Baxter had the courage to file this lawsuit. If ET hadn't been as successful as it was, I wonder if Baxter would have even bothered with the lawsuit. I guess he wanted a piece of the pie, but I would imagine he spent a lot of money and wasted a lot of time on appeals.
1: It's also interesting because I think that there is actually a piece of music that more plausibly served as inspiration for the flying theme. And that's a short passage from Antonin Dvorak's fourth piano trio, also known as the Dumpkey Trio.
0: the similarities are quite striking here. I guess since Dvorak died in 1904, and probably since his music's copyright has expired, no one bothered to take this into a court of law. But seeing as it's just 10 seconds of a 33 minute piece in question here, I I really doubt many people knew about it or bothered to bring it up until recently.
1: And of course, the flying theme is not just the melody we've been discussing. There's also a B section that seems loosely related to the 8th note section that we just talked about. While the A section is structured with long notes first and then short, the B theme is the opposite, short notes followed by long. Now Jeff, you and I talked before this episode about the different names we gave another theme associated with ET. It is a very close cousin of the flying theme, But this theme undergoes arguably the most straightforward development of any theme in the score. It's the first thing we hear after the main titles on solo flute. And it's the last thing we hear before the end credits on French horn with backing from the full orchestra. We'll get to that part later.
0: Now the name I give this theme is the call theme as its performance for me is associated with E.T.'s attempts to communicate with his alien race. Yes, it is used in other places like when Elliot is luring E.T. into his room the first night, but that's my name for this theme. It's interesting that this is the most performed theme of the film, but not surprising since the main storyline of the movie is getting E.T. rescued.
1: One of the most beautiful themes in the score, in my view, is what I've called the friendship theme, which seems to represent the bond between E.T. and Elliot. There's a really beautiful concert version on the original soundtrack, so for listeners who are uh, only listening to maybe the 2002 expanded version, I would definitely recommend checking out the original soundtrack as well. This theme is typically played on very delicate-sounding instruments like harp. The first phrase sounds somewhat reluctant, particularly when it wavers between two notes, so it goes like this. The second phrase, which reminds me a bit of what William Williams would later write on piano for Monica's theme in AI Artificial Intelligence, is comprised pi- primarily of descending triplets. So that's the part that goes, etc.
0: I really like the performance of this theme, especially when Elliot is showing off his toys to ET. It's tender and innocent. And it's 180 degrees from the music we got for the aliens in the first 90% of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. We know right away that E.T. is harmless, and this bond he's forming with Elliot is pure. And as you said, it's the harp that really sells that innocence. And some might call this lazy writing, but Williams decided to reprise this music for the scene when Elliot is saying goodbye to the presumed dead E.T. It's definitely not lazy, because it takes us back to that tender first day when their friendship began. And to add some sorrow to it, the music is reprised in a lower key than before.
1: I think this is one of the most emotionally powerful moments of the film and it's largely due to the score. Another thing that I think is interesting about the friendship theme, which you heard in the first sample we played, is that it's often accompanied by a glissando on high strings. Now, a glissando is just a vocal smear between two notes. To demonstrate vocally, two notes might typically have a distinct beginning and end. Da da but a glissando smears that. Duhhhhhhhhhhhhhh. Think THX logo. When played on high strings, it's a feature that, if isolated from the rest of the music, might sound more at home in a horror movie than a movie like E.T. Within the context of E.T., I interpret them as mimicking the sound of yawns, which for many people have some association with comfort and warmth. In fact, the first time we hear these glissandos, is around when Elliot starts yawning after he brings E.T. to his room for the first time. Note also how the glissando notes seem to be reaching up higher and higher, perhaps to foreshadow the flying theme.
0: David, that's such an interesting interpretation. Those swaying strings in the scene when Elliot falls asleep also is what I equate to yawning. Now, we certainly have to talk about the theme for the villains, or really just one villain who doesn't get a name in the film, but is called Keys in the credits and played very well by Peter Coyote. Its performance in the bass clarinet and bassoons is so powerful that it does make us fear and almost hate a guy whose face we don't see until the end of the second act.
1: The theme for Keys starts on a repeated note, which is something Williams often does when representing powerful characters. Think Superman, Darth Vader, or even Richard Nixon. To me, that bouncy rhythm, the signifies strength because of that repeated note, while the second half of that theme makes it sound so sinister and so much ill intent. Although, as we'll discuss shortly, this theme should not be taken at face value. The theme is played throughout the film, starting in the opening scene when Keys and his henchmen arrive at the forest and try to capture E.T. Once the men start chasing E.T., the theme moves to brass as it becomes clear that these people are trying to capture E.T. It's a real adrenaline pumper. In the finale, when Keys arrives at the site of the spaceship but does not try to stop ET from leaving, the theme becomes gentle, harmless, almost lonely sounding, thanks to a new harmonization and its performance on solo flute and French horn. We'll talk more about that later. There's another theme that is often played when the government agents are in the frame, but it's probably more accurately referred to as a vehicle theme. It's mostly used during scenes with bikes but also a bit for cars. This theme is comprised of just two notes. The first is a driving repeated tone with the second ascending. It's a bit reminiscent of the theme for the Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz, whose Kansas counterpart, Mrs. Gulch, is often seen riding a bike. One thing that might surprise listeners is that all of the themes we've discussed so far have something in common. Their first non-repeated note is a perfect fifth interval. So regular listeners to your show likely already know what this means, but for those who don't, an interval simply means the distance between two notes. You can have small intervals like the theme from Jaws, or large intervals, like the opening of Over the Rainbow. The perfect fifth is one that Williams often uses for heroism. Think about the main theme from Star Wars. It's not hard to understand why Williams would want to link the flying theme with the friendship theme, for instance. Even the vehicle theme makes some sense given Elliot's reliance on his bike. So I want to play some of these uh, and I'm gonna do the, the high note will be playing the themes, the lower hand is just going to be playing the perfect fifth so listeners can really understand what we're talking about. So this is a flying theme. We have the call theme. The friendship theme. The vehicle theme, and finally the government theme. It's not hard to understand why Williams would want to have something that links the themes associated with the good guys together. Even the vehicle theme makes some sense, given Elliot's reliance on his bike. But what made Williams decide to link Keyes theme with the good guy themes? I think Williams meant to show the connection that Keyes and Elliot share. As Keyes tells Elliot late in the film, he's been, quote, waiting for this his whole life, end quote. And ultimately, Keyes allows E.T. to escape.
0: Great points, and I really love those demonstrations, it really helped me to understand that perfect fifth too, which I cannot tell you enough how much I enjoy. And throughout this podcast journey, I think everybody has kind of gotten sick of me talking about that perfect <laughs> fifth because this is it's through this podcast is when I've discovered that the perfect fifth is the, one of the really the main reasons why I find John Williams's music to be so moving. That melodic interval is, well, really, for lack of a better word, perfect. <laughs> and using it in every theme in ET helps me understand why this score has such an emotional impact on me. From top to bottom, every note has a purpose, whether playing a theme or building up to one.
1: And there's one more theme I want to touch on briefly, Jeff, and that's called the children's theme. This theme is beautiful, idealistic, and hopeful. To me, it represents the innocence of childhood. It receives a concert version on the original soundtrack titled Over the Moon. And in both the concert version and many parts of the film score, you'll often hear it combined with or played against the vehicle theme, which makes sense since the children are so strongly associated with their bikes throughout the score.
0: As I mentioned at the start of the show, there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that compares to the final 15 minutes of this movie. Just about everyone listening knows the conversation Spielberg and Williams had regarding this finale, but for the few of you who might not know, we'll talk about it here briefly. Williams wrote music for the final 15 minutes of the film, but the flow wasn't working during the performance. A lot of the music had to conform to a particular point in the visuals, And when Williams conducted the orchestra to play and hit those sync points, the music didn't sound right to him. So, Williams told this to Spielberg, who told Williams to play the music without watching the film on the monitor he has at the conductor's podium. I'll just edit the film to your music, Spielberg said. And he did just that. This is probably not the first time a director has told this to a composer, but it's the most famous one. And Spielberg would let Williams do this again for the finale of AI, Artificial Intelligence.
1: It really is a sign of how much Spielberg trusted Williams. And who can blame him? As you said earlier, Jeff, the score here is some of the most beautiful music Williams, or any composer for that matter, has ever written in my view. I read somewhere that to not tear up during the finale of E.T., you'd have to be less human than E.T. himself.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, I'm glad I've, I am definitely human <laughs> in that regard. I don't tell this to just anyone, David, but I cry uncontrollably in the final seven minutes of the film, uncontrollably, every time without fail. And this is why I can't watch the movie with anyone present, because I'm a little embarrassed to be (laughs) crying like that, and why I might never attend a live-to-film orchestra performance of the score. The music in this finale is so moving and so perfect in its execution that its power takes hold of me and never lets go especially when it's paired with the visuals. I visited the Louvre in Paris when I was 15, and I saw a woman weeping as she looked at the Mona Lisa painting. I didn't understand her reaction then, but I certainly do now. So just as he did for the big chase scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark, John Williams broke down E.T.'s finale into three parts musically. Each has a distinct sound, and it all builds to the emotional finish. Part one is dominated by that vehicle theme you described, David, which is fitting because Elliot and Michael are trying to get away from the house in a van. And one of Williams' best compositional techniques is to lay two themes over each other, making them sound like they were made for each other. In this case, the children's theme, signifying Elliot and Michael, often plays with the vehicle theme, signifying the van they're using as the getaway car.
1: Listen here for William's layering of the rhythm of the vehicle theme over the children's theme, musically illustrating the children's use of vehicles.
0: In the closing minutes of this chase scene, as Elliot pulls the pins off the plastic chute, the children's theme gets its heroic payoff.
1: Next, E.T. emerges from his quote-unquote tomb, wearing a long white robe. Many people point to this, as well as other elements of the film, as proof that E.T. is meant to allude to Jesus. I'll let viewers make up their mind on that one. There's an exciting build-up that leads us into the bike chase scene, as the children use their bikes to try and beat the government and transport E.T. to the landing site for the spaceship. This music is absolutely thrilling. A shimmering, high-string ostinato pedaling underneath a glowing fanfare with interjections of the flying theme and some interesting syncopated brass figures. Parts of it are somewhat reminiscent of Howard Hanson's Second Symphony, written in 1930. Here's Williams. Here's the
2: Hanson.
1: Here's Williams again. and the corresponding section from Hansen's 2nd symphony. Perhaps not completely original, But personally, I prefer William's take on the Hanson material. That bike fanfare also bears a resemblance to the B section of the flying theme. The last three notes of each phrase are the same, albeit not always in the same octave. And if you rewind in that last clip, you'll also hear an interesting combination of the vehicle theme and the government theme, which seems to be William's way of portraying the government's vehicle use in the scene. That's the bit that went... As you can hear, Williams is able to get a lot of, no pun intended, mileage out of a simple theme representing vehicles by combining it with other major themes.
0: Williams and orchestrator Herbert Spencer did such an amazing job of adding so much depth to the music that there's nothing that can surpass this.
1: Agreed, 100%. Anyways, as the government blocks the street for the children and it seems as though all hope is lost, the bikes suddenly take flight and the orchestra erupts into, what else, but the flying theme. There's something so earnest about the musician's performance here. To be honest, it's not a perfect performance. Certain sections aren't completely in sync with each other. But it works, and in some ways it underlines the sense of shock and giddiness that the children must be feeling.
0: And now we get to part three of the finale. I have my Kleenex ready. Yeah, you can say that again. So the children land in the forest and E.T.
1: prepares to go into the spaceship. The score features many of the major themes from the film, including the call, keys theme, the friendship theme on horn for the first time, the flying theme, and the fanfare from the bike chase.
0: As soon as the light from the spaceship shines on the communicator E.T. has cobbled together, The call theme comes in on the clarinet and is traded off through other instruments in the woodwinds. The weaving in of all the thematic material is wonderful, but that's not the emotional heart of the finale for me. The musicians in the string section are the heroes of the next three or four minutes. And I have to mention Herbert Spencer again, who played a big role in putting in the right amount of string instruments in what you're about to hear. And we just heard that moment when Keyes' theme gets the more tender performance as he arrives at the site. No doom and gloom here. He's like a kid again. And we get to the point when the three kids say their goodbyes. And just as an aside, I always chuckle when E.T. tells Gertie to, quote, be good, which Drew Barrymore didn't really take to heart in her teenage years. And then Elliot walks to ET, and well, this is what happens. I already know those darn strings playing that ascending scale are going to get to me. John Williams has been playing dirty with our emotions so far. He knows E.T.'s departure is an emotional moment and he was given the burden of telling us that through his music. From the moment the bikes land in the forest to the time E.T. walks onto the ship, only 35 words are spoken in a seven minute span. Some of them are powerful words, but not as powerful as what John Williams is about to give us musically. He lets the strings build up to the moment right after E.T. says, I'll be right here." And there's a really
1: effective film and score sync at this point. After E.T.'s final words to Elliot, we hear the fanfare from the bike chase, played slowly and regally this time. Between the first and second phrase of this epic fanfare, Elliot squeaks out, bye, through tears. It's an incredibly powerful juxtaposition of the epic and the intimate.
0: That's an amazing observation, David. I never, never, ever recognize that brass fanfare as the bike chase fanfare in a slower tempo. It's just another example of John Williams' genius. He could take a melody that was originally composed for one way, then turn it into something completely different and make it sound amazing both times. But as genius as that was, the music goes into another realm entirely in that final minute.
1: Completely agreed. Once the spaceship blasts into outer space and creates a dazzling rainbow, we are treated to a new trumpet fanfare, which is really just an inverted perfect fifth. So if we think of the perfect fifth as that fanfare is just followed by a gorgeous rendition of the call theme to close out the score.
0: boy what an emotional finale it always gets me right here finishing the film with the same musical statement as it started with was a masterful stroke of genius and we've used the word genius a lot in this discussion here but it really applies i don't recall any other john williams score where the music goes full circle like that and i have to point out the amazing use of timpani in the final moments as well as in other parts of the score When it plays, I feel the ground shake, especially right before E.T. and Elliot take flight for the first time, and when the government agents take over the house. The timpani players on this score are two people who know John Williams well, his younger brothers, Don and Jerry. Both took after their father, who you will remember played drums for a living, and made quite a career playing percussion on film scores, Broadway shows, television, and more. Don and Jerry played on just about every one of their brother's scores that was recorded in Hollywood and continued working with him all the way up to the final Star Wars film Rise of Skywalker in 2019.
1: Yeah, Williams really pulls out all the stops for this finale. Percussions, strings, brass, and woodwinds all get some really substantive features. And it's hard to imagine a more dramatic finish. To me the finale is one of the greatest musical representations of bittersweetness.
0: Precisely. You feel happy and sad at the same time. The emotional impact of E.T. definitely helped it succeed at the box office, where it earned nearly $800 million over its initial release and several re-releases. Currently, it stands seventh on the list of highest-grossing films not adjusted for inflation. Critics gushed over this film. And I do want to point out one review and it's by Vincent Canby in the New York Times. In describing the score, Canby wrote, quote, "John Williams's soundtrack music is beginning to sound just a tiny bit familiar, not all that different from the scores he has done for Star Wars, Close Encounters and Raiders of the Lost Ark among others." Also, at the end of the film, there is an all-out assault on the emotions that depends, it seems, more on the rising volume of this music than on the events portrayed. E.T. is good enough not to have to resort to such tricks." End quote. Vincent Canby has high praise for the film as a whole, seemingly saving all of his disdain for that paragraph I just read. I agree with his review of the score, but not in a negative way. It does sound like previous scores, and that's what made it so good especially in the way we talked about earlier in the use of the perfect fifth. And yes, the final minutes needed the music because, as I said earlier, there's very little dialogue, so the music had to take over. The list of accolades that the E.T. score received is very lengthy. Of course, it won the Oscar for original score against a field of pretty good music that included the eventual Best Picture winner, Gandhi, and Jerry Goldsmith's Poltergeist. A quick story about Jerry Goldsmith and Poltergeist. Steven Spielberg wanted to direct Poltergeist when it was conceived as a sequel to Close Encounters. But when that story changed to a haunted house tale, Spielberg decided to put all of his efforts into E.T. that year. But he still produced Poltergeist and his first choice of composer was naturally John Williams. But E.T. and Poltergeist were set for release one week apart which meant Spielberg had to go to his second choice, Jerry Goldsmith. So this was a reversal of what happened on Superman when Goldsmith had to drop out and John Williams stepped in. Poltergeist, anyway, is right in Jerry Goldsmith's wheelhouse, and he knocked that score out of the park. Unfortunately, John Williams' home run went into another stratosphere.
2: The men nominated for original scores this year are... John Williams for E.T. The Extraterrestrial. Ravi Shankar and George Fenton for Gandhi. Jack Nitzsche for Officer and the Gentleman.
0: Jerry Goldsmith for Bolter, guys,
2: <laughs> and Marvin Hamlish for Sophie's Choice,
1: and the winner is John Williams for E.T. Thank you. I feel very lucky to have been asked by Steven Spielberg to compose the score for this very optimistic and loving and beautiful film. And I would like to thank the orchestra here in Hollywood that that contributed mightily to this soundtrack. And for me, this is a particular joy. Thank you.
0: In addition to the Oscar win, Williams picked up three Grammy awards for his work on E.T. He won his sixth straight award for Best Soundtrack Album and picked up a trophy for Best Instrumental Composition for the Flying Concert Suite that appeared on the 1982 album. And for the first time, he won an award for Best Arrangement on an Instrumental Recording for the Flying Suite. The longer Adventures on Earth, which consisted mostly of the finale, was also nominated for Best Instrumental Composition, and he got another nomination for Best Pop Instrumental Performance. And, of course, there's the Golden Globe, the British Film Award, and many more. And as you
1: alluded to, 1982 is widely believed to be a standout year for film music. Not only do you have E.T. and Poltergeist, but you also have Star Trek II, Conan the Barbarian, Blade Runner, and other film scores that are generally widely acclaimed for their music. So for E.T. to win the prize is really saying something. The flying theme would also go on to become an iconic piece of film music and one of the most recognizable pieces of film music ever written.
0: So David, I know there's so much more to be said about E.T. and so much music that we didn't talk about on this episode. But, like John Williams, it's time to look ahead to the next project. After Williams finished recording the score to E.T. at the end of April 1982, he had his summer work with the Boston Pops ahead of him. He also planned to tackle the score for a relatively quiet film about a duplicitous priest, which was supposed to be a leisurely project until his fall schedule got turned up a notch. I'll talk about all of that in the next episode when I explore the music to Monsignor. David, I I have to thank you so much for being my co-host today. You shed a lot of light on the score to E.T. and gave me a greater perspective on the music that I never even knew existed.
1: It was an absolute pleasure, Jeff. Thank you so much for this opportunity to talk about great music. Uh, As I said, I love the baton. I think it's an awesome project that you're doing and, and spearheading. And I look forward to following the baton as you continue to trek through William's career.
0: And I hope all of you out there learned something today as well. Thanks as always for being a part of this journey with me. And I ask you to please submit reviews on iTunes as it helps give the podcast more exposure and hopefully bring in more listeners. Year two of this podcast is now in full swing. We have 55 episodes left in this podcast and a lot of amazing music to discover. Until next time, the baton is down.